I want to start with a reading. It's a short reading from a guy named Butch Hancock, who was a Texas musician who helped to launch the progressive country movement in the 70s and was part of a, a group called the Flatlanders and then went on to do solo work. Um, but this is a quote that appears before a, a film about sexuality education called The Miseducation of Shelby Knox. And Shelby is a high school girl in, te- in Lubbock, Texas, where Butch Hancock happens to be from. So this is what Hancock says. Life in Lubbock, Texas, taught me two things. One is that God loves you and you're going to burn in hell. (laughs) The other is that sex is the most awful, filthy thing on earth and you should save it for someone you love. So I am preaching about sexuality and reproductive justice, and I think you get the idea that I do intend to have a little fun with today's topic. Um, I think it's helpful and, and probably necessary to be able to step back now and again. Uh, but it's quite a serious topic as well. Just a little bit more about me. As Perry said, uh, he and I go way back because I worked with his lovely wife, uh, Reverend Alita DeCoster, at the Washington office of the Unitarian Universalist Association for many years. And I've known your senior leader, leader, Amanda Poppy, for about the same amount of time and have have followed your congregation um, from a couple steps removed and your decision to become part of the association uh, was rejoiced by many of us. But this is my first time being with you for a platform, and so it's uh, an honor to be here, and I thank you for coming out on this uh, rainy July Sunday. So in addition to being a youth minister and doing advocacy, I'm also a sexuality educator. I train people to teach the junior high and high school portions of our whole lives, which is a sex ed curriculum I'll say a little bit more about. And I'm also a religious humanist, and so I come to you with a lot of theological agreement and ethical agreement as well. And so it's, it's especially nice to, to be here in this community and to see some familiar faces and some new ones as well. So that that Butch Hancock reading has always struck me both for its humor but also for its truth. Because in just those two sentences, Hancock manages to capture, I think brilliantly, our society's utterly conflicted relationship with both theology and sexuality. God loves us, and we're going to burn in hell. (laughs) And sex is the most awful, filthy thing on earth, and we should save it for someone we love. (laughs) Now, I'm sure that most of us here today, at least intellectually, have strongly rejected the negative aspects of these beliefs. We reject hell, and we reject the notion that that our bodies and sex are dirty, And yet, and yet these views are so pervasive and powerful that they still have a dramatic influence on both our personal views and our public policies. Even within Unitarian Universalism, despite our strong historic commitment to liberal values and to science and to sexuality education, we're still not quite there. 
when I was in seminary, I did research on how we engage with sexuality as, as an association, as a Unitarian Universalist association. And I found that we, we do it very well, but in only three very confined areas. Supporting gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender rights. Providing instruction for children and for youth. And for dealing with sexual misconduct. We rarely, rarely talk about sexuality generally. And we rarely talk about it in the context of adult values and behavior. I think that's incredibly unfortunate. And here's why. I believe that sexuality can be one of the best and most beautiful aspects of our lives. And it can also be one of the worst. Issues and experiences related to sexuality can be tremendously important from decisions about connecting with a partner, having kids or not, how we feel about our own bodies. And what are communities like this one, like the Washington Ethical Society for, if not to address the most important things in our lives. For me, the question is not why would we address sexuality in a setting like this, but why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we talk about something that can be tremendously important and conflicted? Why wouldn't we address it honestly and openly so that our experience of sexuality is more likely to be beautiful than broken. Yes, there are risks for talking about it, but I think we we get stuck in the potential risks, and it keeps us from engaging. So rather than just the, the potential risks, I want us to consider the actual costs we pay for not talking about it. The first cost is that we cut ourselves off from a tremendous source of healing and wholeness in an arena where I think most of us could use some more healing and wholeness. If studying sexuality has taught me anything, it is that nearly everyone, literally every single person, will struggle with sexual health and happiness, if not at some point in their lives, then throughout their lives. If our chosen community of belief stays silent on the subject, then it becomes just one more entity sending us the message that our struggles with sexuality should be hidden, that sexuality is something to be ashamed of and kept secret rather than talked about and celebrated. Now I'm going to make a comparison that is perhaps a little unexpected, which is that I think our our relationship with sex is similar to something in the world of Harry Potter. (laughs) Now, in those books and movies, the central plot revolves around a conflict between the boy magician Harry Potter and an evil wizard named Lord Voldemort. And Voldemort is so evil that only a few people, like Harry himself, will even say his name. Others only call him you-know-who or he who must not be named. I think it's about time that we stopped treating sex like Voldemort. <laughs> Referring it to it only quietly or with euphemisms, like 
It's that which cannot be named or that thing or whatever euphemism we're using. It just feeds the suspicion and fear. Silence reinforces the idea that sexuality is something bad, something so dangerous to even talk about. Now, our negative views on sexuality and I think human nature generally come chiefly from two religious sources. One is Augustine, who argued that original sin is transmitted through intercourse, which is why sex is evil. The other is Calvinism, which holds that humans are depraved, sinful creatures. And those are the two theological concepts that that Butch Hancock refers to exactly in the reading. And that's why our relationship with religion and with sexuality is so thoroughly messed up. Now, thankfully, liberal religion and Unitarian Universalist theology specifically reject both of these perspectives. In fact, in fact, our opposition to these doctrines of sin and depravity is central to the birth of both Unitarianism and Universalism. One, we affirm a fundamental worth to human beings and to human potential. A fundamental worth. And we believe not in theological hierarchies of judgment and damnation, but in the fundamental unity of all existence and the transformative power of love. We see a unity between our bodies and our life experience, not a dualism as Augustine and the fundamentalist aspects of Christianity see. Now, although we, even in the mainstream and more liberal community, reject these beliefs, I think when it comes to sexuality, we're still so scared and broken when it comes to opening up and engaging. The reason for this is that I think we're not doing a good enough job of lifting up our own positive, healthy, value-based vision of sexuality. That without this strong, compelling, accessible vision to pull us forward, we simply don't have the resources to avoid being pulled back by our culture of fear and shame. Those forces are simply too powerful for us to resist as individuals without a collective vision that we're constantly bringing ourselves back to. So what is the vision? Unitarian Universalism, I'm pleased to say, has already done quite a lot to articulate a positive approach to sexuality. And one of the best examples is with Our Whole Lives, or OWL, the comprehensive sexuality education curriculum that we developed jointly with the United Church of Christ. Now, there are six levels for our whole lives, kindergarten and first grade, four to six, seven to nine, 10 to 12, young, adult, and adult. And the series is based on a common set of four values and the concrete principles that come from them. And I want to I wanna share with you those four values and just one example of the principles that come from each of them. And as, as you hear these, think about how starkly they stand in contrast to the values held by our larger society. Surely how, how radical these are. 
Value number one, self-worth. Every person is entitled to dignity and self-worth and to his or her own attitudes and beliefs about sexuality. Value two, sexual health. Knowledge about human sexuality is helpful, not harmful. Every individual has the right to accurate information about sexuality and to have her or his questions answered. Value three, responsibility. All persons have the right and obligation to make responsible sexual choices. And value four, justice and inclusivity. We need to avoid double standards. People of all ages, genders, races, backgrounds, income levels, physical and mental abilities, and sexual orientations must have equal value and equal rights. Now I ask you, are these values that are only relevant to adolescents or children? Of course not. These are sound principles for all people, regardless of any age. And in my view, it will be a great day, a great day indeed, when each individual within strong ethical boundaries gets to choose the kinds of behaviors and relationships that are right for them. But the fact is, we're not going to get there by accident. We're only going to get there if we really make it a priority. And I think it's okay to admit that we could use a little help, a little help for ourselves to acknowledge that, that everything isn't perfect in our personal sexual lives. Now, one of the biggest problems I think we face is the tendency to judge ourselves by what we think is normal, by our often deeply mistaken conclusions about what other people are doing or not doing. In some ways, I think our relationship with sex is a a bit like our relationship with the collection plate on Sunday mornings. The culture tells you that you should give, and it generally feels good to give, but sometimes you don't want to or you just can't. Nor are you supposed to look at what the person next to you is doing. (laughs) But it's hard to resist comparisons. Is my contribution big enough? (laughs) Or am I giving too little? Am I giving too much? The reality is that a vast number of individuals in this country really struggle with sexual health and happiness. And I submit to you that the problem is not having problems. The problem is thinking that we're the only person or people that do and that there's nothing we can do about it. The problem is letting our society's broken relationship with sexuality stand in the way of our own wholeness. In my final year of seminary, I took a class called Sexual Issues in Parish Ministry. And one of the best sessions was a presentation by a couple that runs a nonprofit organization called the Center for Intimacy After Cancer Therapy. 
And through books and presentations, the organization's founders, Barbara and Ralph Alterowitz, have helped thousands, if not tens of thousands of people, deal openly and effectively with the sexual challenges caused by serious illness and injuries and medications. Now, here's just one example of the difference that a little knowledge and intention can make. One couple reported that after hearing Barbara and Ralph speak about the the struggles of dealing with sexuality, but also the opportunities available, they went home for hours, talked, cried, laughed, and made love for the first time in two years. Now, healing probably won't be quite that easy for most of us, and certainly that couple still had a lot more to do. But it's a worthy testament to the kind of healing that is possible if we open ourselves up to the possibility. Now, before I talk about the public arena, I want to say a little bit more about the concrete ways a community like this one can engage in sexuality. And one of the keys is recognizing that there are plenty of ways to talk about sexuality and maintain appropriate personal boundaries and privacy. I am not advocating an X-rated coffee hour. (laughs) And really, the, the only time I could imagine it being appropriate to get personal in this context would be in classes or groups that are specifically about sexuality, where there is a very safe space constructed to talk about it. The community's main role, I think, is is to help us identify and to live our values and to give us positive reinforcement to take care of ourselves and our relationships and to have the courage to seek outside help when we need it. But there is a public role, to be sure. And it's a role on the social and cultural level to be a positive force for change in the public square. Now, part of that is promoting healthy sexuality, but it's not, it's not enough. Because I think we need to look not only at these issues as health issues, but as justice issues. We need to recognize and act on the fact that gender, race, class, and sexual orientation have a huge impact on what individuals and what communities have access to resources. And that's where reproductive justice comes in. Let me ask, how many of you have heard about reproductive justice as a specific concept? Okay, good. That was more than I expected. Um, Well, let me give you a little background. The term comes from a group, and this is the background, uh, comes from a group called Sister Song, Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective. And they say that this term, reproductive justice, was coined in 1994 by black women who wanted a more holistic and justice-centered approach to these issues. Because at the time, and and frankly still now, the pro-choice movement is so strongly linked to privacy concepts in the U.S. Constitution that it, that it tends to focus on just the legal rights of individual women. 
And the problem is that for women of color and for other marginalized groups, that narrow focus on the individual right to abortion doesn't begin to capture their lived experience of oppression and their lived experience of sexuality. And it's not just about identities in isolation, as if low-income women and immigrant women and white women and lesbian women only exist as distinct groups, but about how combinations and intersections of identity play a role. And it's not just about how individuals have access to resources, but about how entire communities have access or not to resources. And finally, the issue isn't just about not having kids. It's also about everyone having the resources to have the children they want and to have the resources necessary to raise those children in a safe and healthy environment. Now, my organization, the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, recently developed our own definition of reproductive justice, which, which blends some of these long-standing core principles with our status as an interfaith organization. So this is our definition. For the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, reproductive justice means that all people and communities should have the social, spiritual, economic, and political means to experience the sacred gift of sexuality with health and wholeness. Now, whether or not this whole definition resonates with you, I hope and I trust that there are parts that do. And whether or not you're ready to dedicate your life to the cause, I hope you'll consider taking some action from time to time. There are two pressing challenges facing the District of Columbia right now. The first is a bill in Congress being advanced by Representative Trent Franks, a Republican from Arizona, that would ban abortions in D.C. after 20 weeks with no exceptions for a woman's health or in cases of rape, incest, or fetal anomalies. Now, Trent Franks would not allow Representative Eleanor Holmes Norton to testify against this legislation. He didn't want to hear from her because everyone in the community knows this legislation is not about what women in the District of Columbia need. This legislation is about outlawing abortion everywhere, using women in D.C. as a stepping stone. The second challenge is the sad fact that Washington, D.C. has one of the highest AIDS rates in the entire country. Think about it. At 3%, the AIDS rate in the capital city of the United States, our city, is higher than places like Ethiopia, Angola, and Sierra Leone, to name a few. And because LGBT people, young people, people with low incomes, and people of color have less access to resources for prevention and treatment, they are disproportionately harmed by the devastating effects of HIV and AIDS, which is why this isn't just a health issue, it's a justice issue. And so if you are available this afternoon, 
in the 2 to 5 p.m. range, I invite you to join me and other staff from the Religious Coalition at the AIDS Rally in March, happening to kick off the 2012 International AIDS Conference that is being held in the United States for the first time in 20 years. The rally is at the southwest corner of 15th and Constitution, um, right just, it's just north of the Washington Monument, and the RCRC meeting point is along the Constitution Avenue side, which is on the left if you're facing the stage. You can look for our purple shirts and signs. There is a great deal at stake here, and what we do really matters. Whether we speak out or not really matters, whether or not we are honest with ourselves and our partners and our friends really matters. We need healing as individuals, as communities, and as a society. Our relationship with sex is troubled. It can be one of the worst things in our lives, but it can also be one of the best. We can encourage sexual health and sexual happiness and reproductive justice if we're willing to talk about it, if we're willing to challenge the fear and the shame and the bad theology, if we're willing to lift up a positive vision of sexuality for ourselves and for our world. The question is not, why would we, but why wouldn't we? So be it.